Smart Plays, Club Respect's new podcast, is where we bring the biggest problems facing Australian sport out of the darkness and shine a light on the hot topics that nobody wants to talk about. We're on a journey to bring sport into the modern world of respect and to rebuild the respect for each other that we need to have if sport is going to thrive. I'm Tariq Bayrakla, and on this episode, we're chatting with Rana Hussain on the challenges of maintaining respect for club members while also disagreeing with their perspective. Rana Hussain is an inclusion and belonging leader, making important inroads into Australian sports culture, media culture, and the community at large. One of a handful of women of colour working in sports administration and media, Rana is a pioneer and a passionate advocate for social inclusion, cultivating belonging, and reducing discrimination. Rana's driving passion is to foster a sense of belonging and connection, particularly for those who feel on the margins of society. She regularly features articles in The Guardian, a co-host on the Outer Sanctum podcast, a board member for the Victorian Women's Trust, and was a member of the Anti-Racism Task Force at the Collingwood Football Club following the club's Do Better report in 2020. Rana, welcome to Smart Plays. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so you wrote an article for The Guardian early this year titled AFLW Pride Round Jumper Debate Provides Litmus Test for True Inclusion and Diversity. What was it about this topic that resonated with you? Gosh, I can't believe that was this year. That feels, I mean, we've got had two seasons of ALW, so it feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, look, there was a lot about that conversation that I felt needed to be said. So for people who don't know, a, uh, AFLW player Hanine Zerika for the GWS is a Muslim AFLW player. She was the first. I believe there's two now. So Hanine Zerika plays for the GWS for the first time the GWS were going to have a pride jumper to celebrate pride round as now all clubs do this season and as a Muslim woman for Hanine wearing the pride jumper was something that she felt she couldn't do uh, and at the time she sort of spoke about the need for her community to feel comfortable that she had to represent uh, a community that's already marginalised and that this was a difficult conversation and it just wasn't something that she felt she could do on a number of fronts. She subsequently sort of this season, um, because we've again had the same issue come up, she subsequently said that it is for her, for religious reasons, she can't wear the pride jumper. Now putting aside the why and the religion of it all, and how you feel about that. What sport was presented with in that moment was a very modern challenge um, when it comes to inclusion and diversity because for a long time sport has really talked a big game about inclusion and for a long time it's been about certain groups who have been on the margins being included in sport. But what we haven't talked about for a long time or ever really is what do you do when you start to be more inclusive and when you bring diversity in, when that diversity comes with a clash of ideologies, what do you do with that? And so it felt like for the first time, though it wasn't for the first time, but, you know, in this really kind of in-your-face way, we had a moment in sport where we had to go, how do you deal with it 
when people disagree and ideologically, fundamentally, their identities clash, their beliefs clash. How do you navigate that? And what I found with GWS, there was a lot of noise. The public provided a really scathing response or or not. There are a lot of emotions. But when I actually picked up the phone and spoke to GWS and then talked to people in and around their circles, what became clear was that the club itself navigated it pretty well. They had their own decision-making process. They'd done their own kind of process around feedback and consultation. They'd navigated that really challenging moment as a team really well. And so I was really frustrated that nobody was talking about that. We were just talking about the how fraught the issue was. But I wanted to say, well, maybe this is actually what inclusion looks like in sport. And one of the best conversations I've heard about that was with you and Julia Kiera on the Outer Sanctum podcast with the, the, the fifth quarter. Having that raw conversation between a Muslim person and a person from the LGBTQ community dramatically clashing. It wasn't that at all. It was two people sitting together going, this is a really intense topic and like you both said in that in that conversation, we're just going to sit in the grey or speak in the grey, or you know, uh, the, the, I suppose it's not black and white, and we need to talk our way through that. And I thought that was really good, and I'll add that to the show notes as well. I thought that was a really powerful conversation. You wrote also, this is a beautiful quote: "Inclusion is respect, not always agreement." That's a profound statement. Why is it so difficult to respect and disagree in real time? What are we up against? Well, oh gosh, I mean, it just feels like we've lost the art completely. That because so much of what we're disagreeing about is around identity, so much of the conversation that we're having now is not just about how do we exist together, Mm. but who am I versus who are you? And what does that mean? And we are arguing morality a lot of the time. And so when that's the case, it becomes really positional and tribal and that can, as we're seeing, very quickly becomes me against you at all costs. And I think it's really hard now to put some of those beliefs to just park them for the moment and see the human in front of you, that's really hard, especially, you know, in that moment for for people who identify as LGBTQ, if for them they're hearing you don't agree that I am who I am or you don't like who I am or you are against who I am, of course that's going to bring up so many difficult emotions and and trauma. So, of course, people meet these conversations with anger or fear or sometimes even hatred. I understand the emotion behind it, but as a society now that we're leaning into these conversations, we now need to just go up another level to find that kind of balance and ability to have hard conversations. And so... We need to step into at that higher purpose place in our brain as well, and that's not easy to do. And at the moment, what I see is a lot of 
people kind of protecting their patch when maybe that's not the aim here. Yeah, uh, the, the the idea of respecting and disagreeing, I'm finding, uh, particularly through some of our Club Respect social media conversations and when we're talking to people about, well, when we're raising the ideas around referee respect, for instance, uh, and trying to identify that, yes, you might disagree with the calls that are being made by the ref, for instance, or the umpire, uh, but you still need to respect that the referee is there making the decisions. And um, I think the the idea of respect and disagreeing can, can have so many different factors, and particularly with Hanin and, 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 and particularly with, I suppose, what had the way we do inclusion in sport such a uh, relevant thing across the board you know the way we've seen athlete and club activism um that's had a quite a wild ride recently mm. uh, the challenges for Colin Kaepernick in his playing days and then followed by professional athletes taking a knee with mm. the black lives movement we've seen that players are opting out of taking the knee while some players persist mm. Is that actually creating more of a divide amongst playing groups? I mean, that is often the question lobbed at me. And and when I worked at a club and at Cricket Australia, often that is the response you would get that if we put forward an initiative around a pride jumper or a themed round, you would get that response um, saying, well, this is actually you're being divisive. And I'd really balk at that because I thought, no, like, we're trying to be inclusive here. How would this be divisive? So I don't think by intention it mm. is. And, I, you know, certainly Colin Kaepernick, when he took a knee, he wasn't saying anything but I need to protest something right now. This for me, I can't stand here with my hand on my heart and sing this national anthem when I know that this country has a really big problem that I want someone to pay attention to. So I'm going to take a knee instead. So that was an act of protest. And so I think what we have to come back to, what's happened though in sport and here in particular in Australia, we've really taken those symbols of activism and protest and turned them into fan engagement and turned them into kind of commercial opportunities, which they may well be. And I'm not averse to making money because <laughs> sport needs to make money. But I think we have to understand that actually some of these gestures are symbolic activist gestures. Mm, mm. And so when we understand them in that way, then we can position them and frame them in a way where we say, we're inviting you to do this. But what we've done is say this is who we are, this is what we stand for, and this is what everybody has to do. And and I'm talking about governance here. So in the case of Hanin Zrika wearing a pride jumper, the Giants asked the AFL, can this one player, and she in fact said, can I have an exemption? I'm not anti, I'm, I'm supportive of my teammates celebrating pride. I just can't wear this jumper for X, Y, Z reasons as a league, can I just wear, can I wear my own jumper? And that's not a perfect solution, but the response from the AFL was that, no, you can't because we have the rules. We have these rules and we're seeing it again when it comes to sponsorships in other sports. And in other countries, sponsors have allowed for that. 
and, and organisations have allowed for that where certain players, Hashim Amla comes to mind, you know, the famous cricketer, South African cricketer. He's a devout Muslim. He can't support brand, alcohol brands on his uniform. So his uniform doesn't have those brands and that's negotiated. And so I think for me it comes to governance and how we respectfully have these conversations and negotiate the nuance because the organisations might need to support a brand or support an initiative like a pride round. Individual athletes may not need to. How do you have that conversation respectfully? And I think that's coming back to your point around disagreeing and with the respect. That's where it's at for me. It's we don't all have to be the same and we even will be challenged by each other's ideologies often. But we have to find that place in the middle where we have the conversation as robust as it needs to be and then we keep moving forward and we find ways to do that together. So we've seen some high-profile cases recently involving LGBTQ communities and sport. Could you explain the differences between the case of Hanin Zrika and the Manly Sea Eagles and that of Israel Folau and Margaret Court? It, I mean, it depends where you sit on the issue as well, right? So for some people, all of those examples are all basically one in the same, which I would challenge personally and that was my frustration in, in how these conversations rolled out mm. in some pockets and it's usually on social media. For some people, it's all bigotry. It's all worthy of losing your job, losing your position, losing any kind of sponsorships or, you know, being stripped of awards. For others, it's freedom of speech. Have at it. Say whatever you want. <laughs> and I suspect the truth is somewhere in the middle. Look, I don't, I'm, not the, I'm not the oracle on this, but I think the argument's been mounted for Hanine in particular that as one of the only women of colour playing AFLW and at the time the only Muslim woman and the fact that a Muslim woman is playing AFLW isn't in and of itself quite a radical thing. You know, she's already pushing against her culture and her community. So to ask her then to represent a whole other community and to stand by and expect allyship of her when she's herself carrying quite a load, a lot of people felt like that was too much and that any kind of frustration or anger need not be directed at her. And for those people, the anger and frustration is directed at cultures and communities that are, are homophobic or anti, anti-gays. <laughs> and, and, so, and then so the difference, I guess, when it came to Israel Folau and Margaret Corp, both of those people came out proactively to talk about, to denigrate the LGBTQ community and to really um, vocally espouse values that are uh, homophobic and say some really, I guess, shocking things for many of us. And there's a, there perhaps is a difference there between someone saying, I'm going to opt out quietly and and by all accounts Hanine wanted to simply sit out of the game. She said, if I can't play because I have to wear the jumper, then I, I just won't play. Whereas Margaret Court and Israel 
Flower were soliciting and trying to influence and engage communities. Now, even that, for some people, you could argue they have the right to do that. So it's very fraught, but I think, you know, the coming back to the, you know, the nature of the conversation, what you do, Tariq, the bottom line for me is I think what we aspire to is when we disagree, when we need to opt out, when we choose to have difference of opinion, we do that in a, in as respectful a way as we can. And for me personally, this is now my just my opinion, the way Margaret Court and Israel Folau very vocally denigrated those communities was so hurtful. It was damaging and traumatising a community, in my opinion, unnecessarily. You know, you can have you have have whatever thoughts you want about it. I mean, I, I really don't. I don't want to be kind of preaching to anybody to think in any particular way. My interest really is in how you navigate the differences. And and if I'm in a workplace where somebody is vocally advocating against me and my people, I'm going to be annoyed about that. <laughs> I'm going to be pretty angry. They may have the right on the technicality, but coming back to the bottom line for me with when it comes to respect is do you consider the human the humanity in the other person. So whatever you're saying, whether it's disagreement, it's got to come with that holding that humanity close, that it's another human being that you are now challenging. And so how do I do that in as humane way as possible? And I just didn't, you know, for many people, they didn't see that from Israel and Margaret Court. The Manly Sea Eagles um, saga, which if people don't know, Manly, so the Manly Seagulls are a rugby team. They were about to play in a really important game, actually. The club announced that they would have a, it was actually a women's engagement initiative. And of course, women are not one thing where, you know, we have many intersections. So part of what they were representing on that jumper were was queer women. But of course, all that they saw or were told was about was the rainbow. Um <laughs> And so a number of the players who are also devout Christians objected to that and said, well, we can't do that. And again, I go back to governance here and respecting those individual players and the players in the team. Where was the conversation? Where was the kind of lead up and education and conversation? And we still might have arrived at the same point where they say, yeah, I can't wear that jumper. But at least there would have been a respectful lead up to that. And so... I think there's just slight differences between all of those cases. But again, to kind of jump back to your earlier question, the other thing here for me is this thing that we've done in sport where we ask people to perform an act of allyship in a very specific way. So if I am a great human being, I'm a great teammate, but on that day I say, for this X, Y, and Z reason, I can't perform this act. Does that make me not inclusive? For some people, yes. But I would argue we need to have a little bit more nuance and understanding around some of those things. Yeah. And I think that the best response to particularly the Manly Sea Eagles was by Ian Roberts, a former Manly player who's openly gay, 
his response was as as respectful as a response can be and just the way that it was delivered i, I found it quite beautiful um in in saying that whilst i agree there's a you know we've got completely different perspectives on this from the you know from the manly the manly seven or whatever they're called that he is still willing to sit down and have that conversation and progress that conversation where possible or even just to have it and was very open about that uh, and and his nature uh, his nature was quite respectful around that as well and I mean that's the only way these conversations are going to progress that's the only way we're going to be able to find a solution that that enables that inclusion so you also mentioned education for players which was obviously lacking with manly one of your quotes from that article which uh, I loved as well was quote sport now asks us to understand inclusion through the prism of themed rounds performative allyship that is coupled with commercially beneficial outcomes. What's the risk here for inclusion? Uh, Are themed rounds doing more harm than good? I'd love to do some research on that. If I could do a PhD, I would love to find, also I just want someone to do the research on themed rounds. I mean, I suspect people have gotten quite a bit. I know I have. But I do often wonder now if we're at a tipping point where we're at this point where if you don't have a theme round or you aren't recognised in some way, then you aren't included. And I just don't know if that's true or not. And then I also don't know on a practical level what the solution is there because how can you possibly have a round for every type of identity? Because we've weirdly also, you know, Corporate Australia First and now Sport has understood inclusion to mean you kind of four subcategories which again I understand why but inclusion is ultimately and belonging is ultimately about looking at the group of people that you're working with and understanding who has power and who has less power in that dynamic who maybe needs more encouragement or support or equity to have their voice at the table heard and who needs to maybe play their voice, you know, dial down their voice a little bit because they're taking over. That's how that's how you think about it really. And ultimately you want to arrive at a point where everybody has the access to whatever it is, whether it's a workplace or if it's sport. You know, people can play the game, people can administrate, they can see themselves in leadership and, you know, they're not just doing that but they're thriving and the mix works, you know, we need the mix to work. And I think, again, that's something we forget all the time when it comes to diversity. When we do theme rounds and we have these conversations, we're bringing in the diversity. We forget that the other side of the coin is making the mix work. And so making that mix work is respect. And it might mean some days it can't, it's not about me. I have to park some things or I have to take a back seat or I have to give up some power or give up some of my space for somebody else and quiet my voice and listen. And there are other days where, you know, where I see an injustice, I maybe have to speak up more loudly. So I think we forget that. <laughs> my other issue with the the way sport has gone when it comes to inclusion and diversity is that 
I always see things like, I always see those symbolic gestures as like the tip of the iceberg, that those are the things you do when you've done a power of work underneath, you've done education, you've perfected your governance and systems and processes where you've brought the diversity in and you have that mix working and you celebrate that. And the symbolic stuff is the kind of tip of the iceberg that really sits on top of a whole bunch of other work that's quite deep. But I don't think we're doing that. And again, you know, the Manly Seagulls example is is an example of that where we've got we go for the quick win and we go for the visible, easy stuff, which has a place and is useful and important. But without kind of some of the deeper work, it really can be quite dangerous. And I think that's what we're seeing play out now. And I worry that our focus is also with thinking about it only through the lens of commercial opportunities and and the comms and marketing lens for that to really work it has to come with the with the rest of it and ultimately it's about removal of barriers for me so if there are cultural barriers we need to remove them and that's why you do visibility work like a themed round or a pride jumper because you're trying to make other cultures a little bit more visible but Again, when that's the only thing you're doing, it's just very easy to fall flat and then become quite divisive. And I think the third thing for me about inclusion and diversity work like this is that, especially in sport, but I think for our country in general, we can tell our stories and we can tell our own stories and our individual stories and the stories of all our different cultures and communities and beliefs there have to be things that we unify onto. So we can have difference of opinion, we can have clashing ideologies even, and that's going to be tough and we're going to have to sit with some of that discomfort. But what are the things that we also unify around? And that's what sport provides us with ultimately. When on a match day you come together and you go out there and, and you try and win together, we have to come back to that as well that we've got individual identity and we have our individual stories and then we have this collective story too and how we're going to make our mix, our diversity mix work to achieve what we want to as a collective. Yeah, that's really nice. And the the thing that I think about when you say that, particularly around values or club values is could be could we be in a situation where clubs are so proactive around their values that's the club, for instance, says in five years from now until the end of time, we're going to be doing a pride round. So if you don't want to play, if you don't want to do a pride round, then just don't come to our club. Are these kind of initiatives possible? You know, would that even work? Because I know that there's clubs, you know, there's football clubs in Europe that, for instance, that are probably more left-leaning or probably more right-leaning. Could we see that here? Well, I mean, I think we are already And what will happen there is that people who that doesn't serve culturally or ideologically will self-select away, which might be fine. And because of our personal politics and ideology, we might be fine with that. My one kind of caution there is that we've already been through that, which is why we have this work in the first place, because prior to this, we had a dominant culture that meant people self-selected out. And so I I would just caution any club with that, that as long as you're comfortable with that and you understand 
that to a degree this work will be, it is exclusionary for some people and it's up to you whether that's a, you're okay with that kind of exclusion or if you're not, then you're going to have to have this conversation around how do we hold everybody's politics and make it work. And so then you might be really actively talking to different communities. And I think about the Richmond Footy Club, you know, I mean, Bash is sort of moving on now, but the Footy Club took on a Midsummer Partnership. At the same time, it also brought in the Bashahuli Foundation. Now, there's the same kind of clash again. But for Basha, there was no discomfort there. It was, okay, the club has to do what the club has to do as long as his work could continue and vice versa. So I think it's possible. And I do think that at a local level, I mean, you. T- I'm interested in what you think. At a local level, I think we're actually much better at navigating this stuff because we are dealing with each other face-to-face. I think at the elite level it gets so much more complex because you then have a public, really public conversation about it. You have sponsorships to talk through and and brands to work through and, you know, the perception is reality, whereas at a club level you are there face-to-face and so you you have these conversations all the time. Yeah, and I think in a, in a club setting you're more likely to be beholden to what the members of the committee think and feel and that can be dangerous as well well I suppose it can be dangerous but it's um, I suppose that's part of uh, club culture where what thing do we want to advocate for and if the you know associations are providing sport for a pride round for instance they might just latch onto that but I think the idea of uh, clubs being able to have their own thoughts and and uh, you know ideas that might be verging on political that's when it becomes, I suppose, dangerous but because they're, they're not necessarily um, held by the club and sometimes there's really no mechanism or no way to identify what the club is or what it actually feels like or what it actually wants to be. So I, feel, I find that to be the biggest challenge for the clubs, that they just don't know how to set that identity up in the first place, let alone to, to be able to advocate for things genuinely. I mean, my advice to clubs, whether it's, elite or not, is to not go for blanket solutions with this stuff. And I think where you where you do place your hat is around values like respect and honesty and uh, being able to have hard conversations but then kind of get up and take the field together. Like I think for a sporting club, if that's where you can put your priority, then giving people blanket bans or blanket, you know, expectations will never go well. You can say we we stand for anti-discrimination, but then you have to have a conversation around is not wearing a pride jumper discrimination and have that conversation and how do we feel about it. And it, and it comes down to, you know, we're talking about culture here ultimately comes down to the caliber of your relationships and how you set that environment up and so if the relationships are solid and and you can have those respectful robust conversations you can navigate this stuff whatever it is uh so for me that's always my advice get the culture right get the culture of your club right where you're 
able to have these conversations and then whatever the issue is, because it'll be one thing or another. There's no, it's never going to go away. If it's not this, it's something, it's gambling or, you know, this stuff is ever present. So it's just how you want to manage it all. Yeah. And there, and like I said, there could be so many different areas that you want to go down. You might have had an incident of racism in the club, you know, some, someone being rather directly racist against one of your players or you might live in an area that uh, where you've got lots of uh, refugees or, you know, people who are just new to the country and you want to support that. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I find that in a lot of cases the clubs are – what they're advocating for is often based on their membership, not always based on – what's important for the for the neighborhood or for the community why would we do a pride round we don't have a we don't have any gay players uh, we don't have any aboriginal players so we're not going to do an acknowledgement of country i guess it comes down to who you want to be too right if i saw an injustice in front of me you know on the street something's happening to someone they're getting abused or there's a person who's sleeping rough do i just walk past them and not see them or do I intervene? Like who do I want to be in that moment? Okay, so if I want to be that person in that moment, then on a larger scale standing up for someone's someone else's rights or advocating for environments, sporting environments that are free from discrimination for, you know, on all fronts, they're one in the same to me because we know that there is a lot of racism and sexism and homophobia in sporting crowds, in, on the playing field, in the locker room. If I'm not willing to walk past it on the street, if I heard it, overheard it, then why am I not advocating for that in the environments that I'm in as well? And that's that's how I see it. Um, and that's also how I would see an acknowledgement of country that if if I, you know, if I believe that Indigenous Australians were here first and, you know, that sovereignty wasn't ceded, then then I understand that an acknowledgement of country is appropriate. So I think it, you're right. I think for a lot of people the natural response is, well, I'll do it if the person's in front of me. Like if there's somebody in front of me in my club, if we have queer communities in our club, then of course we'll support them. But you have to think, well, they could be in your club tomorrow. How do you signal to them? But I think equals, and that's why we get things like pride rounds and jumpers because they're signals to people. We want to reach out into community and say it's okay, you can come and be a part of this. Equally, when someone says I can't do that act, we also can't say, all right, well, you can't be part of this if you can't do this act. Yeah, and I find that in terms of behaviour, referee respect, umpire respect, to what extent do we as individuals or as clubs actually intervene in that moment knowing that we disagree with the call that the referee's made, knowing that uh, the other team's going to get the, you know, the, the advantage and uh, knowing that everyone's absolutely piling on to the referee and to what extent do we speak up about that um, and, and, and ensure that referees don't have that stigma attached to it that I'm not saying we need a referee acknowledgement round, but yeah. maybe we do. <laughs> you know, maybe we do just to, just to really highlight that as an important part of what makes sport run. Well, it's funny that you say a re- like a referee 
acknowledgement round. There is some research around pride rounds that says, now I'm going to, I'm probably going to misquote this, but that says they're actually not that effective because the work behind the scenes isn't being done, but they're actually not doing what they set out to achieve. As I think we have to really ask ourselves, how are we served by some of these symbolic gestures? And when I hear you talk about, you know, needing more respect for umpires, I think, yeah, we do. We need to work out how do we actually achieve that. (laughs) I don't know that it's visibility, but maybe it's better connection, building connection between players and administrators and umpires and that might be a pride round uh, a umpire round (laughs) or might be you know workshops or relationship building or I think in sport we've just gotten to this place where we only think about the game day as our opportunity when there is so much more than that that sits in and around sport. You spoke about the comms and marketing of themed rounds and it's obviously big business uh, particularly at you know the elite level, it's obviously necessary that you know it's done on a huge scale and and that it's that that it's used as social media fodder to some extent. That it is something that the clubs need to be talking about that they're doing, or else they wouldn't be doing it. Um, you know that's just the nature of it. And I, I suppose I've, I've just got a couple of thoughts around um, you know the the implications of big money and big power in sport and there's two huge ones uh, coming up one one that's going to be quite eventful uh, around the men's football world cup particularly around you know how the stadiums were built the human rights issues um, the 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 implications of you know encouraging spectators to avoid same sex displays in public um, so you know we won't see boycotts uh, there but also we do expect to see players protesting which will be quite interesting against that but but also around the Hancock prospecting in Nepal, Australia, who is in huge debt, $7 million in debt, the, the, the power of players speaking up in support of, uh, their play, one, of the, one of their players, one of their current players, uh, but also for uh, Aboriginal communities, you know, another huge implication. And now what's happening with Cricket, uh, Cricket Australia as well, now questioning, uh, now there's a question around that. Where do we where do we where do we go from there? there there's two big things that are be going to come you know are going to be coming up and you know to what extent do we let players and players protests and team protests have have uh, have an impact on the the events that are run and the teams? It's the modern conundrum for sport because as we have seen, particularly in America, athletes' voices allowed and and it's their voices that drive then what the national sport organizations do by way of advocacy and service so and and national sport organizations will tend not to go down kind of any identity groups when it comes to the community work they do they keep it very broad in America and then the athletes themselves drive advocacy for communities that they're passionate about it's very different here. Uh, like I said, sport has really adopted the idea of inclusion in in very specific ways. But globally, uh, I mean, look, your question is, you know, how much do we let athletes run the show ultimately? I mean, I don't think we even have a choice around that. They are. Their voices are loud and they are 
un- unfortunately for organizations, people don't connect with the organization. They connect with the athlete themselves. So I think smart organizations and sporting bodies will leverage that and will really listen to the voices of their athletes. The NBA do it really well. So they create space for their athletes to have their own advocacy platforms and, you know, support in kind and don't and empower their athletes around that stuff because they know ultimately it serves them because the audiences are tuning in for those players. And so I'm always baffled when sporting bodies shirk that or or kind of challenge when players, um, there's still an amount of control I think Australian organisations feel like they have over athletes. I think that's starting to shift. The tricky one there is when your organisation is financially <laughs> up the creek and so... <laughs> You know, that's where I think sometimes you might have to take money from people you don't necessarily want to, but then maybe you're in a position to advocate for something with those organisations or leverage that again for an outcome. And the outcomes are never perfect. I think it's tricky. I, I don't really have an answer for you. I think it's really tricky, but I think sporting bodies at their own peril ignore their star players. I think they're a huge asset and when you can work with them and get behind what they're supporting in kind or at least in some you know some capacity to support them to have a voice and you can be clear and say look we don't agree with everything. If Cricket Australia were to come out and say we don't agree with everything that Pat Cummins has to say but we support him having a voice and we're really glad he does and he has every right to advocate for the issues he thinks are important. I think that would go a long way for them and then they can really negotiate with him and talk with him about, well, we have to have this particular sponsor. Now they don't anymore, Alint has pulled out. But they can say, look, here's how we we, let's talk about a plan about how we're going to work with this particular sponsor to get some outcomes that we want to see because we need the money or if we don't have this sponsor, here's what we lose. Are you willing to lose that? I mean, I don't think star players should be <laughs> in the business of telling this organisations what to do or think that they have control over that. But equally, I think organisations can really learn a lot and listen from the players with a voice. As for the World Cup, <laughs> Football World Cup, I mean, that feels like a diabolical situation. I think we have to be really careful when we are playing in a global space when morality and ideology is very different and we just, we, this country has seen what happens when we impose our morality on communities that we don't understand. We've seen that. That's what our our history is based off of. So it's such a tough situation for those players. I can't imagine what it's been like for Danelle Wallum who has been really vocal when it comes to Nepal Australia uh, and their sponsorship with Hancock and I just think it's incredible bravery to speak up for your own values and beliefs in the face of quite a big system and I'm I'm just impressed I'm really impressed that she has. Yeah and with Hancock prospecting I feel like this has been quite unique in that not only are they not going to proceed with the sponsorship but in fact, they probably had 
negative publicity from even attempting it. You know, it will definitely frighten future prospective sponsorships for major sporting organisations who need it, who really, really need it. You do need the sponsors and and Nepal needs money. So I don't begrudge them taking that money personally, but I do always think, okay, so what are we going to do with that now? Um, we all make a million com- compromises all the time and if you if you want to be in the business of change and social change, you have to have a seat at the table. And now Netball Australia, well, they did, <laughs> have a seat at the table with Gina Reinhardt. And so there was opportunity there as well as there was challenge and a challenge of values. And so uh, that's what I always look for. What can we do with this? What are we happy for sport to look like if then we do take less money? Now, we might not. We might make up the money and it might actually be the best decision we make. But when we make that decision, if we're going to make it on values, we have to be really honest with ourselves. Those of us who do advocate for that, we have to be able to say, yes, well, the sport's going to look really different. We have to let go of some programs maybe. But because it's aligned to our values, I'm okay with that sacrifice because it's an important one. So last question, Rana, do you think there is a big initiative that can move the needle in inclusion and diversity in sports? What would you do if there was a big budget to make significant change? My God, it's such a good question and no one's ever offered me a big budget. (laughs) So I've never actually thought about it. Uh, So I want to see more diversity and diversity of thought when it comes to our leaders and leadership, people in powerful positions. To do that, you sort of need to break a few rules. You need to headhunt. You need to shift the environment to make it safe for those people to be part of part of the sporting world. So all of that takes money and resource. But ultimately, you know, if I were to change something, it would be at the leadership level for me. That's in all my time what I've learnt is when the leaders get it, when they understand, when they think outside the box, it makes all the difference and then they sort of set the organisation up. And I don't just mean CEOs but they're, they're crucial. I also mean boards and we need innovative thinking. So for me that's actually where the where I would make the biggest change. And then the resource, I really want to see equal access and opportunity to playing sport, especially for our communities with less wealth. And sport is passed down generationally. Like some of us are born with natural talent, but that ability to turn up to a club, to get to training, to have pads in a cricket bat or footy boots or a culture where you, you can access the routine of sport That's passed down because we love our sport and we push people who are talented forward when it comes to sport. But they're not turning up in the first place. We're missing out on a whole bunch of people. So, Yeah, fantastic. And I think if someone gave you a PhD for all the other research that you wanted to do as well, I think this would all tie in nicely. Rana, thank you for joining us on Smart Plays and for sharing valuable insights into the challenges of inclusion in sports clubs. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Smart Plays, proudly brought to you by Club Respect, 
Victorian Women's Trust, and its harm prevention entity, the Duckdale Trust for Women and Girls. We would like to thank all of our supporters and donors with special thanks to the Wood Foundation and Spices Australia. Executive producer is Mary Crooks. Creative producer is Patrick Skeen. And thanks to the team at the Victorian Women's Trust. Smart Plays was edited and mixed by Paria Tarzade. I'm your executive producer, host, and Club Respect manager, Tarek Bayrakla. This podcast was produced in Melbourne, and we respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. For more information about this podcast, including show notes and resources, visit clubrespect.org.au and follow us on social media at Club Respect Team. You can also find out more about the Victorian Women's Trust via their website, bwt.org.au and follow on social media at Vic Women's Trust. Thank you for listening.